Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Here's a line from Laurel Braitman's new memoir, What Looks Like Bravery. The people we love will die, and there's nothing we can do to stop it from happening. It's hard-won wisdom, rugged truth wrought from her life, which saw her father dying through her childhood, the burning of her home, and her own private travails amidst public triumphs. Who among us would not rather ignore this core reality of the world? But there are deep rewards for facing death and its manifold manifestations, and Laurel Braitman will take us along on her journey towards understanding her grief and unlocking her heart. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're joined this morning by Laurel Braitman, the author of a new memoir, What Looks Like Bravery, an epic journey through loss to love. It's a book about the persistence of grief and about the selves we create to avoid thinking about death, our own, and those of the people we love. Sometimes that could be self-destructive avoidance, or it could be overachievement, or sometimes maybe both. Joining us to share her life and her book, thank you so much for being here, Laurel. It's such an honor, Alexis. Thank you. So I want to start off with where you found yourself in 2015, both the tremendous professional success as a writer and a teacher. How would you describe your personal life, though? I think hot mess, maybe, could have been <laughs> like actual selfhood. Absolutely. Hot, hot mess. Um, and where where I describe in the book, you know, I'm I'm sort of snuffling all over myself with emotional pain, running away literally from a breakup with my girlfriend at the time. Um, but but to the outside world, I I think people would have thought I was doing okay. Mm-hmm. And then as you were literally running away, like in your car uh, driving, um, you hear this segment on This American Life, quite possibly on this very NPR affiliate KQED about a an institution called Josie's Place. Yes, and it absolutely was KQED. Um, I actually heard about it was called The Sharing Place, um, but it was very similar to Josie's Place, which is an incredible center for grief support for kids and young adults and their parents in San Francisco. Um, But I heard the director of another one called The Sharing Place in Utah talking about what happens when children and young adults don't get the support they might need in the wake of a loss. And the director just came on air and said, well, uh, what's at stake is that they may have trouble getting close to people. And when they experience real intimacy, they might flee. And I I was literally fleeing at like 101 miles an hour down the 101 South. Mm. 
Wow. And so at that point, you realize you might need to start processing some of really what was your quite fascinating, beautiful, but also difficult childhood. Yeah. You know, I think my family narrative and still, you know, my narrative is that I am lucky, I am privileged, I am well-resourced, no one should feel sorry for me. Um, And I really spent decades, I think, kind of being busy or trying to achieve my way away from difficult feelings. Mm. Mm. Maybe you can describe a a little bit of what some of those difficult feelings, where they came from. I mean, your father had this, you know, rare form of bone cancer, which you really fought hand-to-hand combat for a lot of your childhood. Yeah. When I was three and a half, my dad was diagnosed with osteosarcoma, which is a rare and aggressive bone cancer. And he was given about a six-month prognosis. Mm. He went through a leg amputation and grueling chemo and radiation, which was brand new for bone cancer in the 1980s. Um, And against all odds, really, he survived. Um, which was incredible, but we never knew how long we were going to get. So we we were parceled out time in very small chunks, like mm. six months uh, between scans or a couple years or six weeks um, or three weeks or two years, mm. and we never knew how long we'd have. So we would get a mm. kind of stay, and then we would have to say goodbye to him, and mm. then we would find out that he didn't die. Um, mm. And that was from when I was about three and a half to when I was 17 years old when he died. So we ended up having a very good amount of time with him considering, but we never knew we were going to have that. So mm-hmm. we lived with a kind of executioner's axe hanging over the dinner table, never quite knowing when it would fall. Mm. I mean, what kind of kid were you given that backdrop? Like, how did you adapt to that situation? Oh, God, I was just such a nerd, you know. Um, <laughs> I was like an outdoorsy, donkey-obsessed chubby Jewish nerd, you know. Uh, (laughs) Sounds pretty lovable, honestly. (laughs) Not to everyone but myself, maybe, you know. Um, But yeah, I I lost myself in books, in reading, in my imagination. You know, I, the book is partly about this, very embarrassing, but, you know, I played with Barbies until pretty much yesterday. Um, And I think that, you know, they gave me my imagination and my made-up games gave me a semblance of control over the things I couldn't in the rest of my life. Mm. Um, and I found so much refuge in the stories of, you know, a, the childhood best books, which almost always actually feature an orphan um, or yeah. someone whose parent has just died. Um, it, it's remarkable how much of literature is is full of that. So I found that so comforting as a kid. Like, well, if I have to, you know, find a family of wolves to adopt me, I, I now know how, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I also uh, found that we shared a love for the, um, I guess it's a romance series called Clan of the Cave Bear. Ooh, so hot. Uh, yes. Isla and John Delar, that's all you need to hear uh, if you read that book and you'll be like flashbacks to your... Um, <sighs> Early adolescence. <laughs> I, I know. Were you disappointed when, like, makeouts didn't all happen in caves? Because I was. <laughs> and you didn't accidentally invent all of modern civilization just in one book series? <laughs> um, yes, it was a big disappointment growing up. Um, so sad. So um, what kind of person, given the kind of kid that you describe yourself as, I mean, what kind of person was was your dad? Oh, wow. Um, 
he was a force. He was an incredible, incredible force, you know, for better or worse in many ways. He, he was a cardiothoracic surgeon. Um, he was also a rancher. He was an amateur astronomer. He was a woodworker. He took up beekeeping because um, after a particularly bad recurrence, he realized that honey, you know, is a natural antibiotic. It wouldn't spoil. And he wanted to create a stockpile of honey that my brother, my mom, and I could keep for the rest of our lives. Um, and he put away bucket after bucket of honey so we'd be still stirring it into our tea long after he died. I, I still miraculously have a couple jars. Um, that was the kind of person he was. He he wanted to outlive himself in a kind of pharaonic way. <laughs> um, and he put extreme pressure on on both me and my brother, but especially me as the oldest, to be a kind of carrier of his dreams and aspirations long after he was mm -hmm. gone. I mean, as you worked on this book and you wrote through your own story, I mean, how did your view of your dad change or evolve as you kind of considered and reconsidered that relationship with him? Oh, great question. You know, I... I wish a kind of memoir on everyone who's had a childhood, <laughs> you know, because I think you're you're forced to to find empathy for every past version of yourself. Because if you don't, the reader won't believe the story, and then you're also forced to find a kind of grudging empathy, even with people that you think might have done you wrong. And I, I think that's such a healthy thing. And and I'm not saying people should forgive everyone in their lives, but I think looking backwards and interpreting your life like you would a dream, um, I, I think can only help. And so for me, having to write my father as his own character, you know, the book is from my perspective. So it's always going to be, you know, my family as I experience them. But to do a good job, I think, as a writer, you really have to approach every person as if they're a prism and write every facet to the best of your ability. So for me, that allowed me to see my dad's motivations in a different way as not just a kind of resentful or loving teenage daughter um, and, and, and gave me a kind of peace, honestly. Hmm. What did you come to understand as you are emerging from this period of your life where you've kind of been packing down all these feelings about your childhood and you're kind of opening yourself up to the grief that was still there. I mean, what did you come to think about how grief worked for you? Well, my coping response to pain and suffering was a, what I learned from my dad, which was... Um, you know, our family narrative was you are blessed, you are lucky, you don't have to worry about where your next meal is coming from. Um, you are very privileged con considering uh, where you grow up and the fact that you don't have to worry. Um, and so therefore, there's nothing wrong here. Mm -hmm. And you should work very, very, very hard. And by the time he died, I had what was basically a to-do list. <laughs> Um, of his dreams for me. And I spent the next 20 years just methodically knocking things off that list as if it was a very literal to-do list. And what I didn't realize until later, much later, my mid-30s really, um, was that this coping strategy wasn't going to work for my life, the rest of it anyway, because I was exhausted. And, you know, as you mentioned, I was, here I was driving away from a breakup. I really couldn't maintain loving relationships in a way that I wanted to. And I realized I needed a new 
way of coping with my grief and I needed to experience it. You know, I was really scared of negative feelings before then. Mm. Um, anytime I had them, I kind of tried to work them away or achieve them away. And I, I tried to anesthetize my pain and suffering with excellence, I'd say. Hmm. Wait, that doesn't work? <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, we're, so sorry. So sorry. <laughs> we're talking with Laurel Braitman about her memoir, What Looks Like Bravery. She's also the director of writing and storytelling at the Stanford uh, School of Medicine's Medicine and the Muse program and author of the New York Times bestseller, Animal Madness. Um, as you can hear, I mean, this is a personal and quite intimate show, but we want to invite you into it. I mean, if you've experienced a loss, what's helped you heal? Or maybe is there a coping mechanism you use that you were rewarded for but may not have, have served you? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Um, email comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. And, of course, you can find us on all the things at KQED Forum. Um, Laurel, as we go out to the break, I think it's important to describe just a tiny bit of this ranch that your parents bought in the boonies of Ventura County because it is kind of its own character in the book, too. It absolutely is. Yeah. Um, I grew up on a commercial avocado and citrus ranch. And before anyone comes to me and says ranches must have cattle, they, they have never grown avocados. Um, <laughs> a, a quick way to know an outsider is if someone asks you if you farm avocados. No one farms avocados. They ranch avocados. So anyway, this has come up a lot on book tour. I just feel like I need to settle this now. <laughs> and, it was, and it was a big, kind of expansive, wildish space. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's about 55 acres of oak scrubland and beautiful orchard and hawk nest and owl habitat. And uh, it's magical. That's beautiful. We'll be back with more just after a short break with Laurel Braitman. We're talking about her new memoir, What Looks Like Bravery. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking with Laurel Braitman about her memoir, What Looks Like Bravery and the Ways That We Deal With Loss and Grief and Love. Uh, Laurel, I wanted to return to some of the work that you were doing as you were kind of cracking yourself open here. You're both working with Josie's Place and then later you're working uh, with adult writers as well. 
I mean, what did you come to learn about how other people, you know, whether they were kids or adults, end up dealing with their their grief? Well, I would say from the children at Josie's Place, I I learned an immense amount, um, including that, you know, my my mechanism for dealing with with my most painful feelings, which included um, grief, but often didn't come out as grief. You know, I think my grief manifested as shame or regret, um, that those feelings were grief itself. And and I don't think I knew that until I started hanging out with these really brave kids um, who had seen loss up close and also the administrators and the other volunteers at these grief support um, organizations. You know, these kids were were being encouraged to admit that they felt guilt um, in the wake of a loss, you know, that if only they'd said goodbye differently or if they hadn't left the hospital room when they did or, you know, in my case, my last conversation with my dad was a fight and I, I carried that with me for forever. I, I actually hung up on him and I, I didn't tell him I loved him. I didn't know he was about to take his medical aid and dying medication. Um, and I, I carried that with me for decades. And what I saw as soon as I started spending time with other people who had had similar experiences was that, you know, the shame, the guilt, the feeling like we had done something wrong um, was a way of exerting control over the loss itself. Like I needed to find someone to blame, even if that was me, because if I didn't, it meant that this loss was senseless, that loss could come for no reason. And so I saw myself and then so many other kids and young adults doing the same damn thing that it it gave me empathy for my past self because I could see it in these other kids and I knew they hadn't done anything wrong. Um, but I think without them, I would have just kept going through my life blaming myself because I needed someone to blame. Mm. You know, there's these passages and when you're kind of doing exercises with the kids, like, can you maybe just describe what one of those might look like that uh, these kind of realizations emerged from? Oh, pure mayhem. (laughs) You know, kids do what kids do, which is a lot of running around and and wildness. Um, And then underneath it, you know, they're working things out. There's a remarkable place for grief support for kids in Portland. And painted on one of their walls is, play is their work. It's a quotation, I believe, attributed to Albert Einstein referring to children. And that was a remarkable thing to see, that particularly those of us who might not be able to verbalize difficult feelings around loss or grief sometimes need to just play them out. And we need to get through them physically. And that's something I wish more of us who are adults dealing with these things also did. So, for example, in Portland, there's a place called the Volcano Room inside the Dougie Center, which is one of these great support organizations for kids. And the walls are padded. The floor is padded. There is only like stuffed animals and big pillows. And you get to go in there and just lose it. You know, Um, you get to be your biggest volcano, but it's safe and contained and you just kind of make yourself tired in the doing. And technically that's for kids, you know, but really that kind of thing should be for all of us. We're talking with Laurel Braitman about her new memoir, What Looks Like Bravery. I'd love to hear from you. I mean, is there an emotion that came with grief that surprised you? The number is 866-733-733. 6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're KQED Forum. 
I, you know, one listener writes in to share this story. My dad died suddenly from a heart attack when I was 15 years old. I had a very loving relationship with my dad, so of course I felt his absence every day. I don't allow myself to ask what if, but I can't help but wish my dad could have experienced so many family milestones that came after, graduations, weddings, grandkids. One thing I tell myself and others who have lost a parent is to remember that true love never dies. The love my father gave me, I now give to my kids, and it's up to me to keep that legacy. But keeping his memory alive is not enough. I want to keep his spirit, his essence going. That's how love never dies. I love this so much. Oh, my God. I do think good parenting especially is a form of time travel. You know, and and I, I I also think, you know, the way we tend to think about grief in America, in particular, in particular, is broken. Um, people kind of talk about grief as something you get through, or you move through, and then you know you have a period of grief or grieving. But you know, as this writer says, that it's a lifelong thing, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't wish the loss on anyone, but I would wish the good grief on someone because I think mm-hmm. it's like a seasoning or a new filter we lay over the world in which everything is brighter, um, and and we just can experience a kind of amplifier of awe or wonder, and, and that's the good part of grief. Mm-hmm. You know, life being what it is, as you're going through this period of your of life and experience where you're trying to figure a lot of this stuff out, you know, things keep happening. You know, I mean, not just bad dates, but an assault and unplanned pregnancy, tragic death of a cherished dog. How did you push forward during the time or how did that kind of, you know, as you're trying to deal with this lifelong grief, how did those new elements kind of change the way that you were thinking about it? I would say life is not nothing if not an endless buffet of opportunities to deal with (laughs) (laughs) terrible surprises, you know? Um, And I think it's it's both a blessing and a curse that eventually whatever coping strategies you've been using up to a point will buckle under the pressure of new losses if they are not the right ones for you. And so that's what happened to me. I might have been able to keep going with my coping mechanism of overwork or... um, drive for achievement, chasing shiny things as a way, you know, to, as I said, anesthetize some of the more difficult emotions. Um, but the losses kept coming. So yeah, it, dog, um, wildfire that took everything I loved, um, mm-hmm. all the things, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to spoil the book for anyone, but, you know, <laughs> uh, more terminal diagnoses, you know, particularly in, in my remaining parent and my mom. Um, they just kept coming, and I, I needed to find a new way to deal. So I don't think I had a choice. Is the truth? You know, I don't mm-hmm. think any of us really do, um, if we want to stay here. Yeah, but of course, there's beautiful things emerging during this period as well. I mean, you take this trip up to Alaska to visit this town that's like where eagles are essentially like pigeons in the you know in a BART station. And you end up at the same time that you're dealing with so much loss, have something new grow. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, first of all, I should say, like, I hate love, like hate, (laughs) hate, you know, like as soon as I start to like someplace, something or someone, it sets off every alarm bell in my heart, which is run, 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 run this thing could be taken from you. And and I just have to figure out how to live with that. And I wasn't doing a particularly great job. Um, but I would say that 
the kids and facilitators at Josie's Place, many of the other people I interviewed. You know, I, I really did go on a big journey for this book. And I think a lot of it was in service, even not consciously at the time, of trying to figure out how to be open to love in a world where we can lose what we love, person, place, thing, job, relationship, for no good reason. You know, um, my early life was was marked by that. And so once you've seen it, you 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 can't unsee it. You can't unknow it. Um, but I I did want to be I did want to have lasting romantic love or even short term romantic love. Mm-hmm. And to do that, you know, you, you have to be open to loss. And that was deeply uncomfortable. So, yeah, I wouldn't recommend anyone go to the Bering Sea in search of love, <laughs> particularly in Unless February. you're like a particular kind of fish, perhaps, it might be a good deal for you. Yeah, yeah. whale. Actually, not even them. They're, they're, they're in Hawaii. But um, yeah, I, that's where I went. You know, February, totally dark, middle of a Bering Sea snowstorm. And I, I was there, yes, to report a story on bald eagles um, that attack people and do other interesting things. Um, and I, I ended up finding someone to love instead. Um, <laughs> like at the buffet line, basically. Yes, yes, at the Grand Illusion Hotel, which, frankly, the only thing grand about it is the eagles in the uh, going through the parking lot trash. <laughs> um, let's t- uh, take some calls here, Laurel. Um, let's go to Reed in San Francisco. Welcome, Reed. Good morning. Thank you for having this conversation. Thanks for joining us. So I called in, uh, first of all, to thank uh, the author for the what I know, finishing my own memoir is a Herculean job when you have to go through so much painful material. So it's an mm. act of bravery to even write it down. Mm. I um, am the reporter who made national news when I was paged by my television station to the scene of my own child's accidental hanging. I lost a four-year-old child and did it in public. And what grief taught me is that grief done right can actually be a very affirming thing that that gives you trauma wisdom and the ability to have empathy and compassion. But grief done wrong can be tremendously damaging and painful. And one thing I learned for those who are listening, in addition to knowing that it's different for everybody, right, Mm -hmm. but that you can't busy yourself out of grief and trauma. You can't task list yourself out of grief and trauma. You know, I went to work for years trying to give my son a legacy building schools, and and I think we remodeled like 15 houses, and it was we got busy doing documentaries. And in all the work, what I failed to do was stop and invite this guest of grief and trauma, as Rumi teaches, to sit with it and breathe with it. And it's only now years later that I'm finally doing that through meditation, through body work, because experiencing grief is something that is truly an inside job. It's a personal and sacred journey that cannot be outsourced to task lists and accomplishments and achievements. That's like somebody, you know, getting in a head-on collision and jumping out of the car and running out of fight or flight and nowhere you run will ever help you. You have to stop and you have to breathe with it and live with it to, to find the affirming power of grief and trauma. Oh, man. Reed, thank you so much for sharing that experience. And, and man, I, yeah, Laurel? 
I love you. We've never met. <laughs> but, oh, my God, I, I adore you, and I can't wait to read your memoir. You have so much hard-won wisdom that, again, I hate that you have, but I am so grateful for it. And I, I think you're a thousand times right. And the grief comes for you, I believe, when you have the emotional resources to be able to deal with it. So I actually think there's no too late um, in this regard. And, and I wonder if you if you couldn't do it before, um, that sometimes we need we need to do that busyness, you know, but but what I wish for others and, you know, wish for myself, too, is, you know, that we don't get it confused, you know, and, and, and that you can still keep achieving, you can still keep with the busyness, but ideally the engine for it changes. You're not doing it to run away from something, you're doing it to run to something, um, not out of yes. avoidance. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Hey, thank you so much again, Reed, for, for sharing that with us. You know, um, this experience that you had with your father dying and you thinking that your final conversation had, had gone so poorly, I mean, one of the most beautiful passages in the book is you've been doing a lot of that internal work that Reed was describing for years, trying to, you know, come to these new realizations. And finally, you go to your mother and you finally ask her, like, what, what really happened? Can you describe, like, what you learned? Oh, God, I felt so stupid, you know. Um, My mom was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) What do you mean your last conversation was a fight? And, you know, so listeners understand, my dad called me, um, told me, was trying to make sure that my college applications were turned in um, because he knew he was going to end his life the next morning. I didn't know. and I was late. I got mad at him because I was like, "What are you? It's about to be Christmas break. I have two weeks to turn these in. Leave me alone. I want. I promise. I'll figure out how to go to college." Um, and then the next day, I got home late, and he had uh, already taken his lethal medication. Um, so I, I felt. He, that he must have died mad at me and disappointed and furious that I'd hung up on him and not done what he wanted. Um, so, yeah, like 30 years later, uh, my mom said that wasn't the truth at all, you know, that that he probably wanted, that that fight was comforting to him. He knew exactly how I was going to react, mm-hmm. giving me a hard time about this. And furthermore, that he hadn't wanted me there, that mm-hmm. I, I wasn't late to say goodbye to him. And that perhaps had I been there, he wouldn't have been able to do it. You know, I, I write in the book, you know, we were a mutual mutual crucible. We were each other's becoming. We were very, very, very similar, um, which is why we fought so much. Um, and I, I don't know that he would have been able to leave this earth with me standing there. I, I don't know. So I, I found out later I hadn't messed up, you know, this narrative that I'd told myself that I was bad, bad, bad for decades was a misunderstanding. Mm. Have to admit, there was a part of me that really wanted your book to kind of end with that scene somehow. Oh, me you too, know, because there was such <laughs> there was such peace in it. You know, there's like a. Uh, I know, but then life happens, right? Like life is like that. Like as soon as you get one realization and you find peace in one thing, like a new trapdoor into a kind of new discomfort opens. And that's life, you know, like I do think and I, and I should say, you know, this this book does have a happy ending. It really does. Um, but mm-hmm. but life is is never quite that neat. Right. Any, mm-hmm. Anyone who is living knows this. Yeah. Um, I want to get to some of these 
um, listener comments that are coming in. We'll get to some more calls after the break. Um, a listener writes, you know, my mom died in 2010 at 84 years old. It was a surprisingly shocking experience, although she'd been sick for a long time. It felt like it was immeasurable and bottomless. I couldn't understand why people don't talk about how to prepare for the loss of one's mother. As I viewed my mother's body, I realized that my body came from hers and that we would forever be connected by this bond. My way of dealing with my grief was to get on my bicycle and ride and ride and ride. It was obsessive, but a healthier alternative to drinking or burying myself in sorrow. Thank you to that listener. Gorgeous. Yeah, we have some great writers. Um, you really do. Them. God, yeah. go Bay Area. Uh, yeah. um, Chris writes, uh, I'm so grateful for this conversation. One of the biggest things I've learned from healing is the Buddhist belief of letting go. It means as much as broad as it sounds. The last thing I said to my dad was I'd call him later since he would forget to add context. He was dropping me off at community college and he had what he calls chemo brain. Um, I mean, when you have you been out on this tour and talking about this book and you've been hearing all these experiences, I mean, what has it been like to connect with this network of people who identify so deeply with the experience you had? I love it so much. You know, I think, isn't this why we write? You know, y- you you raise a flag and then people get to stand under it with you who identify with it too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my experience as a kid, you know, felt so lonely. I I, I only had one other friend um, who was having a similar experience to me in some ways. Um, and so sharing this story is a beacon, you know, for other people who have shared it too. And it's kind of allowed me to make my own kid grief support group <laughs> just at bookstores um, and with readers. And and I really appreciate that. And all I want is to find out how other people have been integrating their sorrows into their own life and, and moving onwards since yeah. we don't have a choice. <laughs> We're talking with Laurel Braitman about grief and love and loss and all the themes of her memoir, What Looks Like Bravery. If you've experienced a loss, what helped you heal? You know, is there an emotion that came with grief that surprised you? Um, Just take in your stories. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Email might be an easier way to get through right now. Forum at kqed.org, or you can find us on all the social media things. We're KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. More with Laurel Braitman right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. We're talking with Laurel Braitman about her new memoir, What Looks Like Bravery. I promised we would get to some calls here. So let's um, go to Jennifer in Oakland, if I can make my thing work here. There we go. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Yes. Good morning. Thank you. And thank you so much for the program. Um, I wanted to comment on the question you said that after a loss, what kind of um, emotions sort of came to you that surprised you? Mm -hmm. And I wanted to say that my emotions were, I saw this anger in me that I hadn't seen, and Mm -hmm. I wanted to really get my voice heard, and I became very sort of out there and, and tried to really make up for all the things that I thought I hadn't been. And I'm an artist, and I did a huge amount of artwork. I even tried to write a memoir. I did write it. And then I got to a place where I felt like, I just want to purge all this. I don't want to have any need to do something. I don't want to stay busy. It sounds familiar with a lot of the things other people are saying. And I started to get rid of material possessions. I started to spend more time listening to programs like this and allowing myself to just sort of recognize that I'm one of many and that this is life, like the author said. You know, it just is life. And it's really, it's very freeing and it's very lightweight to sort of purge all this stuff. And I don't know what's coming next, but it's just kind of been this acceptance that this is what life is. And it does surprise me because I thought that my art and my productivity would cure everything. And it's been wonderful and I'm proud of it, but it's not the answer to grief or loss. I guess the answer is just to stand in front of it and say, that's life. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for, for sharing that perspective. I mean, Laurel, I mean, I do think maybe sometimes as writers we think we can write our way out of the problem of life. And I don't It seems like no. It seems like the answer is no. <laughs> ah, well, some of us still write memoirs anyway, you know. <laughs> uh, I'm still over here trying, even if I know it won't quite work, you know. Uh, but, yeah, I think... I, I love, uh, Jennifer, what you said about surprise, you know, um, and your surprise anger. And I'm glad that's left you. I, I'd say I wouldn't be surprised if it comes back. You know, for me, my my most surprising thing is uh, I see cute elderly people and I want to strangle them. Uh-huh. Like the cuter the older person, the angrier I get. And then it passes. I, I haven't committed any public acts of violence, you know. Um, but sometimes I, I see people who are allowed to get old. Um, and it, it makes me angry. Um, yeah. I mean, those, those emotions that, that come up for you, I mean, do you have new techniques for dealing with those things or is it just that you've been in the work for long enough that you're able to kind of do the chemical reactions necessary to convert them from that feeling to something else? Well, what one of the kids at Josie's Place told me, which I will never forget, is that the worst thing that you can do when you're sad is to try not to be sad. She said her dad taught her that. I think she was seven or eight years old. And that just brought me to my knees, you know. Um, I had been trying for years to outrun my particular kind of sad. And so now I, you know, I've cried more in the last five years than I have in the last 30 and I, I was just so scared that if I let myself feel the depth of my pain that I would never come out, um, that I would get stuck there. And it kind of haunted me at just outside the field of my vision. And now, you know, I know that, like, I might be in the grocery checkout line um, or I might be on a walk or it's often planes. Why is it planes? Where I'll just be overcome with with a feeling of missingness. You know, for either of my parents or, or you know, for the, the place we lost. 
Um, and and that's okay. I, I let myself like get messy for a minute or two. And I just know that eventually it will pass. And and as the caller Reed said, you know, the what happens if you don't let it come is that it comes out in all these other ways. You know, it, it comes for you eventually. Um, so what I know now is that I try to just let it come for me when it comes, and then eventually it will be replaced by another feeling. Yeah. Um, let's bring in Michaela in San Francisco. Greetings, all. Hey, Hi. thanks for joining us. Um, thank you so much for this book and your wisdom and all. And I, as an adult, what wisdom would you offer to those of us who would care for the child in you as you experienced and re-experienced this horrible experience as a youngster? I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you. Thank you, Michaela. Oh, what a great question. Um, I wish this, you know, every teacher should ask this question. Um, the hardest thing that I heard as a kid, you know, from well-meaning adults was like, well, God must have wanted your dad back. And I'm like, well, definitely not. He just would have swore at him, you know, or them. Who knows God's gender? Um, or thankfully, they're in a better place now. Or wishing thoughts and prayers. Um, you know, I was a secular Jewish kid. Um but the idea of a God that would take my parents away made me very, very angry. And I knew very quickly from an early age that adults that told me that I, I just kind of lost respect for them, which is a terrible mm. thing. You know, faith is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, but if someone doesn't share that faith and, and you offer your faith as a kind of Band-Aid for whatever loss they're going through, I, I think that's a tricky that's a tricky thing. Um, so what I wish adults had done for a kind of younger me or f- for any kid who's going through this now is basically benign companionship, you know? Mm. Um, Parallel play kind of stuff. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And a kind of admission that what they're going through is terrible. Um, you know, hey, I, I haven't experienced this myself, but this must be rough. Um, I am here if you want to talk about it, but also if you don't. And if you don't want to talk about it for 17 years, like, <laughs> write write me an email then, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um few more uh, listener comments and then back to taking some more of your calls. One listener tweets, this February was the five-year anniversary of my mother's passing. Though I'm not young, I'm still crying about it. This year, there's a shift in my acceptance. I'm releasing regrets I thought I didn't have. Grief is not a straight line. It ebbs and flows, sometimes tidal waves. My mom was 66 when she passed. Another listener writes, today's program on grief really hit me hard. I lost my father when I was four years old. He died suddenly from a brain aneurysm. A parent dying in childhood changes you on a DNA level. As a family, we never recovered from it. I'm 62 years old, and I still feel the loss. I don't think that grief in terms of someone's death is something you get over or get through. It's like you have to learn how to live without them a little bit every day. And Matthew writes, I lost my mom in 2010, finding her peacefully passed in her bed. The grief was all-consuming as we were very close and she was my only living blood relative. On a trip to Hawaii a few months later, on a drive with friends in Hanalea, I had a life-changing epiphany. As the tears rolled down my cheeks, I saw all at once my grief as a measure of the astounding love we shared. I knew at a soul level that it hurt proportionally to how much I loved her and that I would have loved her even more if it were possible. Love and grief are really one, just different moments in this dance of hearts at the edge of the abyss. Thank you for sharing that, Matthew. Oh, my Um, God. Gorgeous, Matthew. 
Makes me cry. Yeah. Um, me too. Uh, let's um, bring in uh, Kevin in Windsor. Kevin? Hey, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, this this Today especially was a, has been a super good program. Um, I lost my dad about two years ago. He was 69. He had Alzheimer's, but um, he was like my best friend, so we did everything together. So after he passed, it was like I felt this immense like solitude and loneliness. But um, I found that one of the surprisingly beautiful aspects of the, of grief was um, if you open yourself up to people who have gone through this, even if they're like acquaintances and you don't really know them, um, you can have like some of the most meaningful conversations with someone who's gone through a similar experience mm-hmm. because um, there's it, it's so fundamentally changes your life that it's like there's life before and like life after. So um, yeah. I just wanted to say thank you and I'll take my comment off here. Hey, uh, hey, Kevin, thank you so much for, for sharing that. Laurel? Oh, my God. So true. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great selector, basically, you know, for people that you want to be talking to. And I feel like people who have suffered a loss are also much less likely to engage in small talk, which is my personal hell. Um, you know, you realize the mortality clock is ticking. You only have so much time. Um, you don't want to waste it doing or talking about things that aren't meaningful, um, so I often, and, and maybe a bunch of listeners feel this way too, often I realize the people that I end up liking the most have also had a, a kind of loss, not necessarily in early life, but at some point. And it doesn't have to be a person, but it does mark us in, in such a remarkable way as a caller was, was saying. And I think, I don't know, I, I end up liking those people most. And sometimes I don't know until years into our friendship that they have been marked by something, but something about them, I, I could see it, and I, I knew it on a subconscious level. Yeah. One more uh, comment, and then we're going to go to uh, Beth in uh, San Francisco. One listener writes in to say, I lost my husband three months ago, and though everyone thinks I should feel a sense of relief after his long illness, I don't. I cry every day, overcome with guilt and heartbreaking sadness. To cope, I attached a fluorescent star to my bedroom ceiling. Every night before I go to sleep, I talked to the star as if to my husband. He was an astronomer. It's beautiful and Ugh. also tragic, and I'm, heart goes out to you. Same. Um, yeah. Beth, um, welcome to the show. Why, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. And thank you for hosting this conversation because it is something um, that I live within and think about a lot. Um, I lost my father in my 20s, and um, I lost my mother, although she lived into her 90s, um, like there was never enough time. And I also lost her on the heels of losing my oldest sister and one of my dearest brothers. So we had this crazy cumulative, just, you know, couldn't Mm -hmm. get any terra firma before the next wave hit. And I think the thing that I have learned from it, from immense grief, is that it is what guides my life. Like death lives on my shoulder and it makes me my best person. And I am so aware that this, you know, this thing called life, this beautiful experience is just so fleeting and you have no idea. And I carry them with me in a way. I feel like it is my greatest honor and I live more fully because they couldn't or they're not here. And, um, one of the things I think of all the time, and I am a designer, and um, uh, I, I am so sort of 
sad that we don't have those old reflections of like morning armbands or morning clothing mm. because they're such a beautiful way of creating space for someone to be a little less than, you know, their full game and to create this, this sort of comfort and compassion and empathy for what someone's going through. And I just think those are valuable tools and our culture is so afraid of acknowledging like someone is hurting mm -hmm. someone's not at their at their like full capacity but yet maybe that is our full capacity mm -hmm. <laughs> you know like to really feel everything that this world requires of us might just be our full capacity yeah that's so, beautiful yeah beth thank you so much for for that and you know little do you want to talk about that i i mean it's a beautiful point at the end beth about you know the different ways of thinking about what full capacity could be. Profound, Beth. And also, please, you're a designer. Make something. Uh, <laughs> I would wear your armband so proudly, I can't even tell you. Um, you know, for me, that's my my personal jewelry, you know. All, mm -hmm. all someone has to do is ask. And I think so many of us who love people are just wandering around, like, hoping someone will ask. And as you say, People are pretty bashful or worried about saying the wrong thing. And the only wrong thing is not saying anything at all. You know, I, I, I really think that the magic words of, I don't know what to say, I'm so sorry, you know, even though I'm so sorry is such a silly thing we say, it's because we don't have anything else to say. Um, but the sentiment is right. I think the best thing that we can do is acknowledge the loss for other people and just admit, like, hey, I... I have no idea what to say right now. So I'm saying these words, blah, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> I think that's the best. But yeah, morning, morning jewelry, morning bands. My mm -hmm. God, I would just absolutely wear those things. Yeah. Um, let's go to Amy in Berkeley. Welcome, Amy. Hi, I just want to say thank you so much. And um, I'm sorry, I tuned in late. So I miss your guest voice and I'm just so overwhelmed with all the emotions I'm hearing. But mm. um Things not to say to, in terms of if I, God being with you or what the uh, the writer wrote in about it must be such a relief. Um, years ago, I was I experienced for many years seeing my husband slowly descend into what became full dementia to the point of hardly being able to speak, waking up, asking, mm -hmm. wondering where his mommy was, um, mm -hmm. not being able to lift himself out of a chair onto the toilet, etc. And it was so hard, and I was living every day in such extreme grief. Until one day, it all of a sudden occurred to me how the two weeks earlier had been a little better, and, and the month earlier had been even better than that. And I went, oh, my God, I'm going to try and get a little bit of something out of every day, because the grief was so intense. I was whole, that was all I was experiencing, and that it helped me to find a little bit of balance and be mm -hmm. able to get some appreciation mm -hmm. out of every day um, to keep myself going and um, I, I just, I hadn't realized until that, that losing somebody isn't just when they die. It's mm -hmm. all that leading up to it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, Amy, yeah, thank you thank for the you. camaraderie of today. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thank you, Amy. I appreciate it. You know, Laura, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about here at the end, basically exactly what Amy's talking about, that, you know, you had gone through this with your father when he was young, and then you find out that you're going to lose your mom, too, but you had a chance to kind of do it differently in the in the end. Yeah, you know, I I wouldn't. My my mom was diagnosed with uh, stage four pancreatic cancer, which is a doozy of a of a mm -hmm. cancer. None of them are good, but this one is particularly bad. And 
we had very little time, and it was the middle of the pandemic, um, pre-vaccine, and I I wouldn't ever ever I am not this kind of person that would say that these things have are gifts. I really wouldn't. Um, but I would say when you're given what is not a gift, you can do with it what you will. And because of the experience with my dad, we were able to help my mom die in a way that I never would have been able to do had I not gone through this experience before. And also had I not had so much guilt and regret for decades. So what I knew going into the experience with my mom was that no one would walk away if I had anything to do with it. No one would walk away wondering if they were loved. No one would walk away hmm. feeling like they'd said the wrong thing or they didn't get a chance to say what they wanted to say. And we really worked with the time that we had, you know, imperfectly mm -hmm. to try and send her off into the next adventure, you know, um, with no regrets. Mm. And do you feel like in the time since she's passed, being able to do it that way has helped you process this differently? Yeah, I, I have I have no guilt about my mom's death. Mm. And that feels like such a victory <laughs> um, since I lived with so much guilt and regret and sadness before. And when it comes up, like I actually did feel guilty for a couple of weeks. You know, she read this book as she was dying. I, I finished reading it to her the day she took her right to die medication. Both both my parents did medical aid in dying, which is a mm -hmm. whole other show. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, our last interactions were me reading to her. Yeah, my God, I'm going to cry. Were re <laughs> me reading to her you know, what she'd done for me and what she taught me. And that was such a gift. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so I don't have any regrets. What I do have is so much sadness. Mm -hmm. I, You know, I would trade this whole book. I, I would trade all of it for yeah. one more hour with my parents. Yeah. Well, Braitman, thank you for sharing so much of yourself with us this morning. It's really beautiful. Thank you for our listeners for really having brought so much to this as well. And again, Laurel Braitman's memoir, What Looks Like Bravery. Thank you for joining us, Laurel. Thank you so much. And thank you all for sharing your stories. You're yeah. in my heart forever. Absolutely. Oh, also, you can see oh, yeah. Laurel tonight <laughs> with Samin Nosrat at City Arts and Lectures. That's important. Um, so if you want to continue this conversation, make sure to do that. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This has been Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.